All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Copper Hills, and I'm so glad to welcome you today. Welcome to our online folks as well. Whether you're watching it this morning or later in the week, we're glad you're joining us that way. I want to get to that in just a little bit, but a couple of things. Uh, four or five times a year, we do something called Copper Hills 101. And what in the world is that? Well, that is a casual evening that we do here on campus in our coffee shop meant to give information to folks who are relatively new to Copper Hills. Uh, tell them a little bit about uh, how we got our start and what we believe and our values and how we do ministry here. And I would really encourage you to be part of that. Uh, if you are checking out Copper Hills and wondering whether you, we might be a church home for you, that would be a great place to start. Maybe you've been here for a while and you think, I think this might be my home. Uh, you don't know us. We might be weird. We might be crazy. Check out who we are before you make that commitment. And then we have a number of people who call Copper Hills their home, but don't know that we have like a formal membership that we do where people make a commitment to this church family and we make a commitment to them. And uh, this is the first step to formalizing that membership. So that's happening this Wednesday from 7 to 9 here on campus, we'd love for you to register. You go to our website and do that if you will. You saw the bus out here? Give blood. No, give blood. Like it's uh, the gift of life and encourage you. There's still some slots available if you would like to do that. And then remember a team of people who are down in Mexico right now building a home for a family who uh, didn't really have much of a home. What they had was a shack that none of us would live in. But they're getting a new home. Here's the cool thing. Dad in the home, through the process of discovering the love of Christ that a group of people who love Jesus demonstrated by giving a home said yes to Jesus this week. Yeah. So uh, last weekend, if you were around, even if you weren't, uh, we celebrated our 25th birthday anniversary and we had a great time, didn't we? Whoa, that was not very enthusiastic. I had a great time. So I don't know if you know this or not, but Wednesday of this last week, the 15th, was the actual anniversary date of our first public gathering. And so uh, Elfie and I decided to do something that was kind of a nostalgic tour of memory of 25 years. We went and visited all of the kind of significant sites over the 25 years that have been significant to our church family, or at least to us as a, as a family. So we started out at 7th Street and Thunderbird, which was Tapatio Cliffs, if you know where that is. That is the first place that Elfie and I visited when we came to the city in 1997 to just check with Jesus if this is where he was leading us to start a church. And uh, on that occasion, we climbed up to the top of Tapatio Cliff, looked out over the West Valley because we just felt that was the area of the city that Jesus was inviting us. And we said, Jesus, we don't know anybody in this city. And we don't know the folks that live in the West Valley. But if you'll do this one thing for us, if you'll give us a love for people we don't know, we're coming. And we're going to try to love people in your name and uh, we just felt that that was the lock moment for us. We made our decision, and this is where we came. And so 25 years later, we stood on that same mountain, looked out over the, <clears throat> the West Valley, two people we have crazy fallen in love with, and said, Jesus, thank you for the last 25 years. And then we went to some of the schools that we met at and some parks, and 
the theater. That it, just, it was a wonderful like walk down memory lane. In fact, it was uh, so profoundly wonderful for us that I decided that uh, maybe what we would, we would do as a church family going up to Easter would be to take a nostalgic walk with Jesus over the last week or so as he walked from Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem where he would give his life for us and come back from death to life. And just look at some of those experiences along the way in, a, in preparation for Easter 2023. It is the hinge point of all of the human race. Here's an interesting thing to me as I was thinking back. I just asked the question a little while ago. So what's the date on the calendar where Easter number one happened? Well, there's lots of controversy over it. Not so much that it happened. There is still some of that as well, for sure. We know that in different parts of the world. But the controversy is really narrowed down to two dates. And I don't know what it does to you when there's an actual date on a calendar. It just becomes a little more real. So here are the two dates that people who think deeply about this stuff think about. Uh, April the 7th of AD 30 is one option. April the 2nd of AD 33 is another option. Put it on your calendar. That weekend really happened in real human time, in real human space, in a real city on planet Earth. God came into this world, died on a cross, came back to life. That's all he gets. Like, that's the hinge point of humanity. That's the deal. So, I want to take that journey over the next week, but this week I want to start with the end, the city where he gives his life and comes back to life again, because I find myself, as I did, particularly as a young man, wondering this question, why does it matter? Not that it happened, but what difference does it make? Do you know this? Yeah, you might. I didn't. There are nine different resurrection accounts in the Bible. Nine different people or groups of people who come from death to life, and none of them are the hinge point of human race. Just this one. Why this one? Did you know that there were nine other ones? Elisha and Elijah both raise a young child from death to life. In fact, we're told this crazy story of somehow or other a dead body gets tossed into Elijah's tomb and comes back to life just by being, I guess, the, around the aroma of Elisha. I don't know. Comes back to life. Jesus raises some people from death to life. You know that, right? And here's the interesting thing. When the curtain in the temple at 3 o'clock on Friday, that April weekend, uh, when Jesus dies and the curtain is torn apart, we're told there's an earthquake and graves open up and dead people walk out alive. Yeah, I know. Here's a kind of a really interesting one. Uh, some 20 years later, Paul, the, like the giant of the first century church, is uh, uh, preaching, teaching one evening, second floor of a home, and this guy could talk. I mean, he could talk and talk and talk and talk, and he's talking late into the night, maybe early morning, and there's some kid sitting on a windowsill, open window, listening to him, and just like some of you this morning are about to do, falls asleep. <laughs> Fortunately for you, you're not like this kid. You're not going to fall out a window. But he falls out the window, falls two stories, and dies. No, that's tragic. 
That's really sad. Till Paul raises him by the power of God back to life again. Like those are great celebrations for the family that didn't change the world. Oh, they changed it for the family and the dead person who's alive. They didn't change the world. So why this? Why does Jesus' life and death, resurrection, why is that the hinge point? Well, I would like to look at some passages from the, that were written in the first century that kind of help think that through a little bit for us. When I was a kid, I was taught this, that the resurrection of Jesus meant this. Everything that he had promised and said he would do was now true because he had proved that it was true by saying he was going to come back to life again. So it was a validation of everything he had promised, and it is, for sure. I was also told that it's my ticket to heaven. Had he not come back to life, I wouldn't get to heaven when I die. And I, was, I grew up on that for the longest time. And then I would read passages like this that says, uh, go to the next passage. Uh, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, here's the interesting. You can't pick it up just but it says that. When it says he was raised to life, really the, 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 the context of it is this. He was raised to life and continues to be raised to life for my justification. So it wasn't just like something happened that weekend. Apparently, it's an ongoing thing. Well, I was never taught that, or I read something like this. I want to know Christ. This is Paul writing. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. I don't want to know that so much. Becoming like him in his death. Again, we don't read it clearly, but if you look at what the actual text in the Greek is, I want to know the, the power that was demonstrated on that April weekend and the ongoing consistent power that he has. I thought it was like a time thing, like it happened in history. But apparently history is being lived out even today. Does that make any sense? It's not just a one-time deal with repercussions. It's a one-time deal that continues to have justification power and power of some kind in our lives. That might not be new to you. It was for me. I remember sitting in a seminary class in Pasadena, California, and the Bible professor pulled out a Bible verse, and he began to explain it a little bit to me. And I just said, I, that, like, that's new to me. I didn't know that. I just, I, I guess I never thought deeply about it. This is, again, from Paul. This is what he writes in Ephesians. He says, I pray the eyes of your heart. Now, this is like, I earnestly urge, I long for, oh, how I hope that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I want you to understand something. I want you to know the hope to which in this moment, whatever you face, you're being called to. Not some previous hope that happened over there, but something happened over there. It's renewed every single day. You live in a place where the hope is being renewed in whatever situation you find yourself. However bleak, however dark, however frightening, however scary, however uncertain, however it is, whatever it is, I want so much for your eyes to be opened to a hope that you have right here, right now. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. So apparently this hope is something that you inherit or his holy people inherit. I've told my kids this. They get nothing from mom and me till we die. They don't get it early. I mean, in the end, they're going to get $12.13, but they're not getting it early. 
They are not. Someone's dying before they get it. Well, that's what inheritance is, right? So apparently somebody died so that we could receive this present time glorious inheritance. There's something more to the resurrection. And then he refers to his incomparably great power for us who believe. So what is this incomparably great power? Here's the, here's the, vibe. Here's the payoff right here. The power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Hold up, time out. Is he saying this, that our hope in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever it is, that we have been given the power to deal with that. And if you're wondering how much and is it enough, it's the same quantity, the same quality of power that raised Jesus from death to life. That would be the appropriate response. That means there's nothing, nothing, that you face in life, that you do not have the hope and power to deal with in the way that Jesus would deal with it and helps you deal with it. Nothing. Doesn't matter how bleak it is. Doesn't matter how dark it is. Doesn't matter how, where is hope coming from? Because a resurrection happened and that took tremendous power to raise Christ from death to life. That power is in you, if you believe. If you believe. Mm -hmm. Do you believe it? Is that real? Is that how you live? Is this how this works? This was absolutely shocking for people. And he goes on to say, hey, look, at, like, just in case you thought that was just for another time where that resurrection power exhibited, he says, not only in the present age, so not only back then, not only in this present age, but in the age to come. It's an all-encompassing power. It's what's going to get you to heaven. It's what's going to help you live here. And it happened here, but it didn't just stop here. It's life forever. This, this was such a radical idea in the first century. What, what do you mean God's power is present we get what he's done in the past. We hope he does it here, but we have no idea for the future. See, Paul's speaking to different groups of people. One group that he's speaking to are the Greeks and the Romans. And their idea of power was that it resided in the mythological God someplace in the universe, Mount Olympus or the underworld or wherever it was. And when they thought about life, they thought about the gods give life. And as long as they're pleased with you, you have a good life. Uh, they would depict it something like this. This is the good life, as long as you're good with the mythical gods. And then everyone dies because the death rate hovers right around 100%, which it has forever, <laughs> okay? And then there's a big question mark. We have no idea what happens after this. Power for, the, for that part? No, they didn't offer power for that. They offered power that was contingent on us getting along. Not universal power if we believed. It was power if we behaved. That's what they lived in. Remember the movie Gladiator? How at the end of it, Maximus dies in the arena and then he's transported on this invisible gurney through this wall into some 
That was just a mythical idea too. They didn't know that. There was a big question mark. And then there's another group that Paul's speaking to. These are Jewish people, Hebrew people, God's chosen people. And their view of this whole power for now or for the future looked something like this, that God had in fact made the world. He'd made it beautiful and wonderful and their ancestors has occupied it. And then Adam and Eve decided to go alone without God and the whole thing collapsed. Sin, this, this thing that God did not invent but happened as a result of people walking from him entered the world and then disease and destruction and ultimately death entered the world. And it was bleak and black and dark, hopeless every once in a while. God would call a prophet or a priest or a king to go to them and come back to me, come back to me. I want to give you this life. And they would, and then they wouldn't. And it just was dark for them. No power to live in the moment. However, there was a promise. And the promise was this, that one day a Messiah would come. And he would put everything right. He would redeem what God had made at the very beginning had been wrecked by people, and now he would restore it. The, the Messiah would come and put it all back together the way it was. Intimacy with God, closeness with God, the love of a father. That's what would happen. And Messiah's had come, and every one of them had disappointed them, hadn't followed through, couldn't do what a Messiah should do, and they live from disappointing Messiah to disappointing Messiah, and then a Messiah named Jesus came along, and he made promises of what he could do, and then he died, and it was over. Another failed Messiah, and then they didn't believe that he had come back to life, and so there was no hope that this Messiah who died is just one more, and so... They just wait. They continue to wait today for their Messiah to come and make everything right and to redeem what is so badly broken. And then Jesus comes along. A Jewish man raised in that kind of picture. But he knows who he is. He's not an ordinary human. He's God himself come in the form of a human being to planet earth to redeem what God had created back here, to rescue people, to invite them into a friendship with God that would be intimate and close like Adam and Eve experienced, where it says they walked together in the cool of the evening. Can you picture that? Two people just totally known by God and knowing God and enjoying the real presence of him in that moment. That's going to be, that's what I've come to give people. And then somehow we got this idea that he came to give this to us, but we would have to wait till we die and go to heaven to experience it. And Jesus came with a different message than that. This is what he came with. Very similar, like sin came into the world and wrecked everything. Death, the ultimate expression of abandonment of God comes into the world and it's dark and it's bleak and then he dies on a cross and if all he had done is died on the cross the bleakness would continue because all of us would live the way I lived as a little kid for so many years probably 10 or 12 years 
where I had this understanding. I didn't know the power of the resurrection. I knew about the resurrection. just didn't know what exactly it was and why it made the difference. I knew the cross did because my sins were forgiven. And then I didn't live any differently. And you know what I would do? I'd ask Jesus all over into my heart again, forgive me all over again, because it obviously didn't take. Or I wasn't, I wasn't one of the guys that got it right away, or whatever it was. And so I must have hung around that cross a thousand different times. And then I would come to a realization, it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. It's the cross, essentially. But if you have a cross without a resurrection, you don't have hope. You don't have power. You don't have life inside of you. But it's because of the resurrection that that life can live in us when we come to a cross, admit who we are. Like we're humble enough to go, I'm jacking life up. Do it on my own is not working. Self-saving doesn't save at all. And if I can get to that place, I get forgiveness and the power of the resurrection to live the power-filled, hope-filled life with Christ. It's the resurrection. Do you know that the first and second century church, do you know what they were known for, their message? you know what the good news was for them? He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Why? Because it's, it's victory over victory over demise and death. Well, it is that, but that's not the story. He's alive so you can be alive. So you can live victoriously. So you can live fearlessly. So you can live without worry and regret, regret and disappointment and shame and sadness. He's alive. Come live with him. Don't wait till you die. Go to heaven now. Live with him now. This is the power of the resurrection. No wonder, as Jesus walks from the north to the south that last week, we're told later on that he says, uh, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That doesn't work, does it? For the joy set before me, I mowed my lawn. No, no. The joy was you and I living with him, the resurrected life. Oh my goodness, this is a good deal. Is it not a good deal? So if that's available for us, what are the implications of it? Well, uh, there's hope for sure, but that hope is found in certain freedoms that the resurrection gives us. These are real freedoms. This is not mythical. This is not cartoonish. This is the real thing. Here's one freedom that we read in 1 Corinthians. This is what Paul again writes. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Okay, you can read that different way. You can read it this way. Because Christ is raised, your faith isn't futile. You're not in your sins anymore. You're not. So the freedom you have, the freedom is to live without regret, shame, and condemnation. Yay! That's the freedom we have. We don't all do it, but it's the freedom the resurrection brings us. 
Death pays for it. Resurrection gives us life to live there. Now, this would never happen to you, but imagine this. Uh, This will happen to you. You shop at Costco and you end up buying way more than what you should. (laughs) Hundreds of dollars more than what you should. Your card is overflowing. You went there for sliced meat and you come back with a cart full of stuff, all right? So you pull up to the checkout counter and you're ready to put stuff on the conveyor belt and the guy behind you goes, "Uh, hey, I got this one. I'm paying for them. (laughs) You go, no way, really? Yep, I'm paying for you. I got it covered. I'm paying whatever you got there. I got that covered for you. And he gives the credit card and sure enough, he's paying for your stuff. That's fantastic. Now all you need is the receipt because you're not getting out of there without the receipt. (laughs) You're not. So though he's paid for it, right? And he needs an accounting for himself. He gives you the receipt and you joyfully walk to the gauntlet and you wait for your turn. And someone counts approximately the number of items, checks off your receipt, gives it to you, and you get to go home with free stuff. The only thing is, you choose to do this. You can't really believe how good that is. So you push your cart, take a right, go right back into the store. Flash your ID card, and now you're rolling your stuff back in. You go back to the checkout counter, and you ask the person to check you out again. That's stupid. (laughs) That's just dumb. Who does that stuff? Nobody, right? Except we do it all the time because we don't recognize the resurrection. Gives us life where there's no shame. Don't roll your cart back in. Go home with your stuff. You've got the receipt. It's paid for. It's all paid for. You'll never have to pay for it again. Ever. No, like forever. And that's the freedom that happened on that April weekend. Yes, your sins have been paid for. And then you got a receipt that said, now go home and enjoy what I've given you. You have freedom to do that because of the resurrection. Secondly, Scripture talks about another freedom. Since the children have flesh and blood. This is from the really dense book, Hebrews, okay? Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, also shared in their humanity. God became human so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. He identifies who it is. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I had lunch with someone this last week who said, Almost every day, I have some time during the day where I'm just afraid to die. I'm terrified to die. I'm, like, I'm a Jesus person, and I'm afraid to die. The resurrection, because of what it gives us in life, we don't have to be afraid of death. We're free not to be. Like, the process of death can be a little scary, that's what, like, you know, death and sickness and disease, that, that can be in some ways. But not what happens afterward. There's this old saying in the first century uh, where uh, a church father said this, you know, the, the Romans taught us that death was the executioner. Jesus taught us that death was the gardener. 
What's he mean with that? For the Romans, death was the end of some kind. Big question mark, right? For the follower of Jesus who has experienced the power of the cross and the resurrection, it's just a process now between here and there. It forms us in our thinking. It prepares us to celebrate. It prepares us for once this is all said and done and finished, it's not fully there. We're we're still living with death. We're still living with disappointment. We're still living with independence. Those are things that are just part of our real experience, even as followers of Jesus. But there's a day coming where Christ is coming back and he's going to take us to a place. But we live in this place right now. And we don't have to be afraid to die. We can be. But we have the freedom not to be. Because the devil's greatest, greatest tactic, his, his weapon that he would go to in the end, like all other weapons fail, this is what he would use, death. But death has been swallowed up in life with Christ. And as a believer, as a follower, not just a hanger on, but a believer who puts the weight of their life in Jesus, death and resurrection, We don't have to be afraid. He's got us. He's absolutely got us. And he's going to lead us into that place. But he wants us to experience the wonder of the resurrection life now, all the way through to when we close our eyes for the last. That's the second freedom. Here's the third one that we're given. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, that happened on the cross, right? Penalty paid, receipt given, no shame, no condemnation, no fear of death, which stood against us and condemned us. That's done. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. What makes the cross the triumph point is that he didn't stay on the cross, that he came back to life. That's where the triumph comes. Do you know they actually would have won in some sense if he had stayed dead? Because that would have meant the enemy won. But he came back to life. And that means for you and me, there's not a power on earth that can take you out. Now, there's all kinds of things that look scary in our world. We've got wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, uh, pandemics, uh, fractured country, anger, uh, relationships that won't get fixed, like all kinds of stuff, right? There's somebody bigger and stronger than all of that. And all of it. And he's alive. He's not just a picture on a wall. He's alive and actively defeating those enemies that come into our lives. Oh man, the resurrection is just amazing. And I thought, as a little guy, even into my teens, yeah, it's about you. You said you would do it. And you did it, so you must be telling the truth. Or, man, I'm glad I got a ticket to heaven. And then I miss out on life. That journey that Jesus takes from Galilee, over five, six, seven days, you know, like 120 miles or so, he makes his way down to Jerusalem, to Bethany, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Kidron Valley, to Caiaphas' house, to Calvary, to Golgotha. For the joy of what he knew you and I could live in. 
He endured the pain and the suffering and the violence because he knew you and I, if we would say yes to him and place our trust in him, would live the resurrected life, the life he had come from to come here that he wanted to take us all the way back to and redeem everything along the way. Get out of town. That's incredible. That's incredible. And so, Jesus, what do we say to you other than thank you for thinking enough of us to see our desperate plight, to see our lostness and our fear, to see how we condemn ourselves. And we're so ashamed at times of the things that we've done, of the things we've said, of the grudges we've held, of how it's just so impossible to forgive people for the things they do to us. And then we place all of those against the shadow of a blood-stained, nail-pierced, rugged cross that once upon a time, in real time, sometime in April, early in the first century, you hung on that cross and you died there. God died there. But the greatest tactic of the enemy wasn't wasn't able to stand up against you, Jesus. The power of the eternal God worked in your body through his spirit and breathed life into you. And you came out of a tomb. And then you looked to us and said, come on, live with me. Don't be so proud. Don't be so arrogant that you can't admit your own brokenness and your own acts of independence. Throw them at the foot of the cross. I gave my life for that. And now come live with me. Don't wait for another day. Don't hope that happens when you die. Go to heaven with me now. Live live in the power I have for you. No shame, no condemnation. No fear of death. And live with the confidence there's no power greater than the one that raised me from death and it's in you today. Come live with me. Come live with me. And so Jesus, it just might be around this auditorium right now. You're speaking to people. Maybe it's somebody online where they're ready to do what we sang about early and that's just to surrender, to raise the white flag and go, I'm in, Jesus. I'm in on that. I want the power of your death and resurrection. I want to live with you now. I'm standing at the door of your heart. If anyone opens the door, I'm going to come in and I'm going to have dinner with you. And that'll be a every day, every minute dinner. And we'll do that all the way through eternity. What a great promise, Jesus. So form us into people who think about you. Think about a resurrected you. And then increasingly, may we be mistaken for you in this world. 